Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 5, verses 10 through 19. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that is of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Redeemer City. And we, this morning, continue in a series uh, going through uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the Roman Christians. It is, um, by many accounts, uh, the high mark of the entire scriptures, at least from a Christian perspective. Uh, Paul is really laboring to get into the hearts and the minds of these Romans the truth of his gospel. And so we are laboring to do the same with one another. And, and uh, we come, this is, a, this is kind of a tough passage this morning. It's, uh, you could feel even Susan grasping as she read through it because uh, it's linked uh, by a lot of different theological jargon. And there's, it's just really, um, it's really doctrinal, really heavy. So we're going to try to make it as, as practical as we can. Let me start by saying this. Uh, as we reorient ourselves to, to the argument Paul's making to us as we come to these verses here, uh, beginning in really in verse 12. Christianity believes that we were made by God and we were made for God. And therefore, it is no use trying to find a, a happiness apart from him because no such thing exists. St. Augustine in the four, fourth century said it this way. He said, O Lord, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In other words, if you build your life on anything other than God, it will never be enough. Something will always feel a bit out of sorts. If you're not right with God, nothing else is right, no matter how good it's going. That's, that's what Augustine was saying, and that's what Paul has been saying. 
And so our fundamental problem is that we are alienated from God because of sin, and therefore we're restless. The gospel message that Paul is bringing to us in this book then is that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. You see that, verses 10 and 11 there, right? We can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We can have peace with God that will in turn lead to the peace of God within. In other words, the love of God, if you look back, if you have a Bible, to verse 5 of chapter 5, the love of God overflowing in our hearts, which would produce contentment and joy and inner strength and spiritual power, even in the face of suffering, which is what Paul has been talking about here in this chapter. But here's the problem. Even if you're a Christian, we tend to go in and out of the subjective experience of God's love for us in Christ, sometimes from day to day, sometimes for whole seasons of our lives because of hard things we walk through. We don't feel, this is a weird way of putting this, but I want you to hear, we don't feel our justification. We don't feel the reality of our justification. That's the way I want to say it. We may know it to be true, but... It doesn't bring any peace or comfort or joy uh, to our lives. It's true. We may be able to say, you know, I know this is true, but it doesn't feel real. And there's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between knowing something to be true and feeling that it's real, knowing it to be real. Paul wants the love of God to be real to us, that it would be shed abroad in our hearts that word means filling us and overflowing from us there, in, again, in verse 5 of chapter 5. That's what this whole section of Romans is about, Romans 5 through 8. It is, about, it is about the love of God becoming real to us. And here in these verses, uh, Paul introduces us to a doctrine that will help us. Now, your outline is not going to be very much help to you this morning, and I'm sorry for that. I was at a church planner assessment center all week this week, which... It was my hubris, I think, probably, that, th that made me think that I could do that and get a sermon ready. And so as things started to crystallize late in the week, because my preparation was, was late in the week, uh, we had already turned these things in, so I, I, I apologize for that. But instead of, you see, we're, we're going to do the same thing just a little bit differently. You'll see in your outline that I want to contrast uh, what Paul refers to as the first Adam and the second Adam here in Romans chapter 5, but here's the way I want to do it instead of just, just doing that contrast. I want to show you that really we're given a doctrine. We're given a doctrine to really hold on to here that's helpful to what I've been saying. And then what Paul does is he uses the, these, the, the first and second Adam as the illustration of that doctrine. So I want you to see, uh, just, just very quickly this morning, the doctrine that Paul introduces that will become important throughout the next, really, four or five chapters of the book and then the way he chooses to illustrate that doctrine uh, with the, the, this picture of the first and the second Adam. So let's, let's start first uh, with the doctrine. What is this passage really about? And I would, I would put it to you this way. Um, theologians have referred to what Paul is writing about to us here as our union with Christ. It's the doctrine of union with Christ. The way to the kind of knowing and relying on God's love that I'm talking about is to understand and apply this doctrine of union with Christ. This is, as I've said, a theological text, and therefore there's really no choice. It has to be a theological sermon, but remember that all theology is application. So I hope, even though it is a pretty theological sermon, that it will also be a fairly practical sermon too. At least if I do my job, then it will be. 
So, what then is union with Christ? What do we mean by this? How does it help me keep myself in the love of God, which is what Paul wants so desperately for us to do? How does it, how, how, how can we stop going in and out of feeling our justification? Or how can we know with certainty, with absolute certainty, if you go all the way back to chapter 4, verse 16, you'll see that what Paul wants is for us to have absolute certainty that we are right with God, that he loves us, that we can have peace of God, filling us with the peace of God so that we go about our lives with spiritual power. How can we know for sure? And here's the answer. Again, all of this is connected. So if you go all the way back, it's helpful to have a Bible. You can go all the way back to chapter 4, verse 16, and you'll see that Paul's carrying out an argument that he began there in that verse. And in that verse, which is really a crucial verse in the whole whole, um, book, in that verse he says the only guarantee... The only, the only sure guarantee of God's love, of God's favor, of our being truly justified in his sight, the only guarantee is grace. Look at verse 6. It says, it depends on faith so that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed. The only guarantee is grace. In other words, the only way to know for sure that God loves you no matter what is to know it ha- his love has nothing to do with you. Let me say that again. The only way to know for sure that God loves you no matter what is to know that his love being set upon you has nothing to do with you. We began this morning reading in verse 10, even though really in your Bible, the next section starts in in verse 12 because this theme of union with Christ is first actually introduced there. So look at verse 10 with me for just a minute. You'll see Paul says, if we were reconciled, to God by the death of his son, how much more shall we, and then pay attention to this phrase, shall we be saved by his life? That's a really interesting choice of translation there on the part of the ESV. It's really uh, a bad translation. They typically try to be really literal, and in this case, they weren't, because literally what the phrase says is, so shall we be saved, be saved in his life. And there's a big difference. Our justification, Paul says, is in his life. In other words, we can be righteous not because we are actually righteous, but because Jesus was and we are in him. He loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, and he loved others with a perfect record from his very first breath to his very last. He has a perfect record of obedience and if your faith is in him and you are in him then everything that he has done is credited to you that's Paul's doctrine it's as if you've done it everything that Jesus did it's as if you have done it because in a sense you have you start to feel you start to feel how weird that is It's as if you've done it because, in a sense, you have. Paul elsewhere says, I am co-crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. In other words, when Christ was crucified, I was crucified too because I was in him. It's as if I was there. I died in his death. And we'll see this in Romans 6 as we get there. But as the old hymn writer says, here's the essence of the Christian gospel. When the hymn writer says, upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Michael Reeves, who is a professor in Wales, put it like this. He said, all sin, if you want to boil everything down, all sin 
is simply Christlessness. And therefore, salvation is Christ. Salvation is Christ. What do we get in salvation? We get justification, sanctification, all of those things. Glorification, heaven, you know, the perfect record. Of, but what, what we, what we, if we boil it down to its essence, what we get in salvation is we get Christ himself. Christianity doesn't split the world up into the good people and the bad people. Instead, there are those who are in Christ, good and bad, and there are those who are not. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done or not done. That's not what is in question. What is in question in the matter of Christianity is whether you are rightly related to Jesus. Put simply, I am saved not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done, because what he has done is what I have done. His righteousness, not my righteousness, is my righteousness because what goes for him goes for me. And that's how I would define this, this doctrine for you. What goes for him goes for me. But, of course, we have to ask the question, how? How? Because we as Americans are highly individualistic. We believe that each man is an island unto himself. The Bible, however, has a very different worldview. And we have to really enter into the worldview of the Bible and be, have our worldview challenged by how the Bible says things work. The Bible takes a radically different approach, what theologians call solidarity. And solidarity means that you can have a legitimate relationship with a person so that whatever they achieve or don't achieve, you achieve and don't achieve. It's the idea of representation, which we're familiar with in our, in our, in our culture. We are governed by people who represent us. They make decisions that have impact upon us, and we really don't have much say as we all probably feel the frustration of at times. This idea that we can be related to someone else so that what they achieve or don't achieve or the decisions that they make really do have impact upon our lives. The best example that I know is the story in the scriptures in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? Here are the two armies of Israel and the Philistines, and they're engaged in battle with one another. And uh, instead of the two armies bloodying one another, they decide to each choose a champion to represent. And so Goliath, uh, the giant man, is the champion of the Philistines, and Israel chooses the teenage boy, David, to be their champion. And the two of these men go into the valley, and they square off, and it's decided that whichever champion wins, the victory will be counted as the victory for the entire army. So if David won, the whole Israel, the whole of Israel won. If he lost, they lost. He's their champion. He's Israel's representative. He didn't just win for Israel. He won as Israel. He was the stand-in for the entire army. His victory was their victory. And that's exactly what Paul is laboring to show us here. That Jesus in Hebrews is called the founder of our salvation. And that word is the word champion that... Jesus didn't just die for you and me. He died as you and me. He lived as you and me. Every victory he achieved is our victory. Every success is our success because of this principle. Here's the principle. We're really focusing on verses 18 and 19 today. So if you look down there, you'll see this principle that the actions of the one create implications for the many. 
that, that, that whatever the one does, the representative does, out of what he does flows all that he has done for the sake of the many. So notice how many times the one leads to the many or the one leads to the all here. Let's just read those verses again. Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to, the con- to condemnation for all men. You see this? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The work of one gets applied to the many. The work of one gets imputed to all. The righteousness that saves, in other words, is an alien righteousness. It has nothing to do with me. God's love for me is not based upon my performance, but on the work of my representative. And that's why it's a sure thing. If you have a second, take your worship folder and and go back to the the assurance of pardon that Joe read just a few minutes ago. It's this wonderful phrase, this wonderful, um, the English teachers in the room are probably maddened by what Paul's doing here because it literally is one long run-on sentence. Paul gets super excited and he just, he just semicolons and, and commas everything all the way to the end. Although we, we split up the punctuation because it's just too difficult to read that way. But that really, he just got so excited he just forgot about all the punctuation rules. And he's excited because he just starts to go through all of the things that are true of us uh, because of the work of Christ. And here would be the homework that I would give you to do this afternoon. You ought to go through and make a list of everything Paul says is true of you if, you, if your faith is in Jesus. He says, I mean, we can just look at the first few verses. He says that we're chosen in him. You see that verse 4? Uh, that in verse 5, he loves us, that we've been adopted by, as his sons. Back in verse 4, that we're holy and that we're blameless. Go through and circle everything that God says is true of you. And then the second thing you ought to do is go through and underline every time he says that the reason these things are true is because we're in him. Do you see that? So verse 4, even as he chose us, what are the next two words? In him. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, you know, in Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption and go underline. And so what Paul's showing us here are these marvelous things. I am chosen by God, but not because I'm first round draft pick material, but because I'm in him. I'm holy. And blameless, even though I'm not even close to those things in reality, because he is, and I'm in him. I'm loved. And believe it or not, it's not because I'm so lovely. It's because he is, and I'm in him. So what goes for him, goes for me. Now, that's the doctrine. But then the second thing, and the last thing. Uh, that I want you to see from this text is that we are introduced to the illustration that Paul uses to drive home this truth, that God always deals with mankind through a representative. And here we see this, this, uh, this analogy, this picture that he gives us of the two Adams, the first man and the second man, as, as uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says. And we are involved in meaningful ways with both of these men. Naturally, we are involved in the sin of the first man and we stand condemned. In salvation, we are involved in the obedience of the second man so that we can enjoy justification in life. So every single person in the room this morning is either in Adam or in Christ. That's the teaching of the text. That every single one of us is one or the other. We're either in Adam or in Christ. 
But the question we have to answer is exactly how then are we involved in both? Because there are similarities and there are differences in the way that we are in Adam and the, what it means to be in Christ. So let me just say a word about the text so we can get this clear. If you look carefully with me at these verses beginning in verse 12, you'll see that Paul begins in verse 12 to, to, to he begins a comparison. And then again, Paul just really wasn't into grammar. He was way more concerned with theology. And so he begins a comparison, and then he really just stops in the middle of a, of a, um, of a thought. And that's why it really is weird to read. And, and, then, and then in verse 13, in mid-sentence, he begins, he begins a parenthesis that runs all the way to verse 17. So 13 through 17 is really a parenthesis, but it really is a parenthesis inside of a parenthesis. Are you confused yet? Yeah, me too. And it's, it's, a, really, it's a really difficult text. Verse 13 begins a parenthesis that runs to verse 17, but 13 and 14 are a comparison between Adam and Christ. And then verses 15, 16, and 17 really are a, are a contrasting of the two. So there is comparison and contrast within this, this illustration. It's important to remember, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, let's deal with, with Adam first. And in what ways are we involved in Adam's sin? We'll look at verse 12. Here's what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so sin spread to all men because all sinned. And then he stops, he stops the, the thought before he finishes it. What does this teach? I think it teaches this, that at the very beginning of things, God created a man from the dust of the earth and he put him in a garden. And you'll remember the story maybe from Genesis with only one prohibition. He was commanded not to eat from a particular tree. And the truth was, he didn't need to eat from it. There were plenty of trees, right? He had plenty of food. He lacked nothing. And yet, the man rebelled. He could not withhold himself. And what we're told here is that he represented us, that in some way, we are involved in his sin. When he sinned, he sinned as us. And that's what that phrase that's really important in verse 12, because all sin, do you see that? So death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, the commentators point out that it's an aorist plural verb. And the, the significance of that is that an aorist verb is a verb that points to a past action. In this case, a past collective corporate action. It does not mean that we are all like Adam, that we sin now on a day-to-day -day basis as Adam sinned. It means this. It means that we sinned when Adam sinned. Again, the principle of solidarity. Adam acted in the garden as a representative of, every, of the whole human race. He acted on behalf of every person who would ever live. And his record is now, according to Paul, imputed to us. You remember that word imputed from chapter 4? It refers to an account balance that's paid by someone else. Abraham was counted righteous. His righteousness was imputed to him. But in order to have imputed righteousness, you have to have imputed sin. We all sinned in Adam. That's what we're told. We fell with him. Therefore, we are born into a state of sin from our first breath. We share in the guilt and the ruin of that first sin because we shared in the act of it. And that's why, the word, that's why Paul goes to this word condemnation, verse 18. This is what it means. It means that we are guilty of sin before God and under a sentence of death. Every single one of us. We are dead men walking. Uh, you know, and it's true even if we can't name it. 
Even, even if we don't buy this whole Christianity thing, and we think it's, it's just a bunch of silliness, it's true, and, we can't, and, and I know it's true, not just because it's objective truth and that's in, it revealed in God's word. I know it's true because I walk with people all the time who can't stop feeling guilty and condemned. We all, we all just have this pervasive sense of being guilty and, and feeling condemned. And it's the opposite of having the love of God shed abroad in your heart. It's this pervasive, this pervasive sense and idea that what hangs over my life is, a, is God's frown and not his smile. Uh, I was walk, talking with a friend the other day who's going through a really horrible time. And is, is watching his dreams uh, be crushed. And it, it's really sad. And I was, you know, trying to comfort him, and, and I just, no matter what I said, he couldn't get there. And he kept, he kept saying, it just really struck me, he kept saying, you know, I just feel so guilty. And I thought to myself, you know, there are a lot of things that he should be feeling sad and probably angry, but not guilty. Because he hadn't, he hadn't done anything. He hadn't done anything wrong. But see, it's the trace of Adam in him. That even when we encounter the brokenness of this world that really is out of our control, we sense that it's somehow our fault. There's condemnation, there's shame that we can't escape. And so the picture of God that emerges can often be quite damaging. People ask me, you know, before, really, before I, I don't know if it's before I became a Christian or before the gospel really began to make sense of me, if you ask me what my, my picture of God in my head was, it would be something like, if you remember, do you remember the old game that you'd go to the arcade and play? It's called Whack-A-Mole. Anybody remember Whack-A-Mole? And you had a little mallet. And then there are like seven or eight little holes and the little mole poke his head out of the hole. And your job was to just hit it, you know, crush as many of them on top of the head as you possibly could. And you got points based upon how proficient you were at doing that. That's what God was like for me. I felt like, you know, he was just waiting for me to kind of peek my head out of the hole so he could just smack me over the head. The sense of condemnation and anxiety and fear. Paul says, this is what a lot of us are living with. Now, you might object. You might say, look, look, I don't buy it. That's not fair. I can't be held responsible for someone else's actions. I probably would have done better than Adam if it had been me and not him there in the garden. Be careful. Be careful. Understand that's to argue with God. And who better to choose a representative for you than him? You can't possibly think that you could have chosen a better representative for you than he would. Who knows you better? You are the one who made you. Adam was perfectly created and designed to act exactly as you personally as an individual would have acted in the same situation. God gave us the right, fair representative in Adam, and therefore he can hold us accountable for the actions of that one man, because in his sin, all sinned. We are guilty in him because we are involved in his sin. Now, let me just ask this before we really come towards the end. So what, right? I mean, what, what does this matter? Why is this important? And I really have two answers to that question. The first is you have to understand this doctrine that we're wading through in order to have a proper view of people in the world. Man, listen, man is not basically good. He is inherently wicked. And historically, Christianity has believed that in original sin, that we are all born with an inclination toward evil. The current, the current of our life flows 
toward sin and depravity. And that's what explains the world. That's why things are such a mess. We keep messing, making a mess of things because we don't work right. We, and we don't need more education. We don't need more legislation. We need to be made new. We need to be renewed. That's the only hope we have. And that's what this teaches. But secondly, it's important to labor in this because without imputed sin, which, which Paul's arguing for him here, there is no imputed righteousness. And that's his whole argument. If it doesn't work this way with Adam, it can't work this way with Christ. We can be made righteous by our involvement in Jesus' obedience because we were first made sinners by our involvement in Adam's sin. So verse 18, just as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all. So let's turn to the second Adam then, and let's just let's say this. Why was Jesus called the second man or the second Adam? And it is Paul's way of describing how he accomplished salvation for his people. We're, we're in the trouble we're in with sin because of the first Adam. And so the second Adam had to come and to undo what was done by the first. And there are similarities. Think about this. Sin, you know the story again in Genesis. Sin began in a garden where the first Adam said, not your will but mine be done. Salvation comes in another garden when the second Adam prays on the eve of his crucifixion, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And, uh, and here, Tim Keller really puts it so well, I'm better off quoting him rather than trying to just steal from him and not give him credit. So let me just read to you what he says here. These are his words. Sin began when the first Adam disobeyed God about a tree. Now salvation is coming when the second Adam obeys God about a tree. The first Adam was told, obey me about the tree and you will live. The second Adam, second Adam was told, obey me about the tree and I will nail you to it. And I will destroy you on it. And yet, unlike the first, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the second Adam, obeyed God even to his own death. And the scholars say that this one act of righteousness there in verse 18 that led to justification in life for all men is, is his his uh, journey to the cross. That Adam passed condemnation and death onto all his posterity. Jesus passes on justification in life by being condemned and dying in our place. He took upon himself the sentencing that our sins deserve. He died. And because we were co-crucified with him, then Paul's, we're going to get there. But we might as well go ahead and say it now and anticipate what Paul's saying. Because we were co-crucified with him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See? Because we were united to him in his death, we don't belong to the realm of death anymore. We are raised to walk in newness of life. And in death, we will be raised to walk in a life that's even greater life than the one we experience here. Instead of condemnation, Paul uses the word justification. You see that in verse 18? Which is a legal, forensic declaration of not guilty that is true, even if it doesn't feel like it's true. And that is the battle that Christians engage in to believe in this justification against all of the evidence that our own hearts present that it could not be the case. That is our striving. We, we do not strive for the Father's smile. We strive to rest beneath his smile. That is life there in verse 18. Resting beneath his smile, that's life. Not paying the bills and washing dishes and carpooling kids. That is bios life. There's an actual Greek word 
Fios, the breathing in of oxygen and the expelling of carbon dioxide. But the word here in verse 18 is zoe life. It's a life unique to Christianity. It's life that is really life, going through your days, drawing from deep wells of communion with God that result in joy and peace and spiritual power. Union with Christ means that I am in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. This, is, this gets weird. Even in his ascension. Where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And where are you? If your faith is in Jesus, where are you right now this minute? You're sitting in this pew, I can see. But do you know what Paul says in Ephesians? That you are, right this minute, seated with him in the heavenly places. Isn't that amazing? It's a sure thing, folks. You're already there. Nothing can take that away from you. Nothing can come in the way of that. I am in him. I'm involved in all of that. It's all put into my account. If you look through a piece of red glass, everything's red, right? If you look through a piece of blue glass, then everything you see is blue. If your faith is in Jesus, if you're in Jesus, then God looks at you through Jesus. All he sees is Jesus. Union with Christ means that I'm in him, but here's the other thing. It also means that he's in me, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Adam is too, amen, still, unfortunately. But more and more, more of him can be seen in me. And here we see the difference. I told you there were similarities and differences. How exactly are we involved in Jesus' obedience? Adam was the true representative of who we are. He did what we would have done in his place. Christ is the representative of what we are becoming, what we will one day be. He did what we could not do, and yet, not yet anyway. And we are not yet like him. We are in him. But we are not yet like him, but we will one day be when we see him as he really is. The difference is we were actively involved in Adam's sin, but we are passively involved in Jesus' obedience. He does all of the heavy lifting, and he is making us like him. So let me just finish by saying, are you, are you in Christ? That's the question. That's the question Christianity poses. Nothing else matters. The scandal of Christianity. Please know my heart when I say this. The scandal of Christianity is that even someone like Larry Nasser could be holy and blameless and loved if he would confess his sin and hate it and turn from it. I don't say that flippantly. My heart wrenches, actually, as I say it, because I'm not sure I believe it, to be honest. But here's the thing. If I don't believe it for him, then how can I believe it for me? Grace abounding to many, verse 18. Grace abounding, grace overflowing, grace abounding to many, to the very worst of us, to the most monstrous and criminal, even to me. That's Christianity. You believe into Jesus. Faith is not just believing in him, it's believing into him. Are you in Christ? The Christian, is your heart condemning you this morning? As mine so often does, can I say gently to you, if that's the case, then you need to repent Repent too. What an offense to Christ after all he has done to keep and secure our justification, to keep acting like it's not enough. 
to keep insisting on putting ourselves back in the spotlight. Listen, take yourself in hand. Say to your heart, it's true. Say it again and again and again until you feel it. It's true. It's true. It's true. Even if I can't feel it, say it again and again until you feel it. Drag yourself in these last moments to this table and cry out to God, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Uh, That's your obedience this morning. And so to that end, uh, let's pray, can we? So, Father, as we come to your table now, would you... Would you help us in the places where we are so slow, so lacking in faith, to truly believe the truth of, of what you tell us here, that, um, that the righteousness and, the, and the, the life that you offer to us has nothing to do with us, and therefore it's a sure thing. If it did have something to do with us, then we could constantly be measuring our our, our performance to see how we're doing and, and then gauge how you feel about us accordingly, but that's just not the case. Uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's all what you have done. And so forgive us for continuing to just put ourselves, stick ourselves and stick our noses into business that is not ours, putting ourselves in the middle of things that, aren't, that really aren't our concern. Our flesh makes us do that. Would you just destroy that part of us and would you cause us in in these last moments to be more and more rejoicing in what you have done, more and more self-forgetful, more and more active in taking ourselves in hand and talking to our hearts instead of listening to them and driving home to our souls the truth of your great love for us in Christ. Use this meal that we now gather around to do that work in us as you promised to do, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so if you're here and uh, your faith is not in Jesus, uh, come to him, uh, believe in him, uh, because you will trade in condemnation for justification in life. If you're here and your faith is in Jesus, uh, then the reason we preach the gospel every week is because what you need is not to go back to your efforts, but to believe uh, the truth of his love for you more deeply. And I hope this service has helped you. Hope these words will send you out in the knowledge of uh, that you go not under his frown, but under his smile uh, because uh, of, of the work of Jesus for you. So receive these words as the promise of just that, his smile, and go uh, to uh, witness to him and to live for him wherever he sends you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Bonus peace.